Well, this morning we begin a new series in the book of Philippians. We actually had a group gathering uh, this morning at 8.30 uh, to begin a, a, a video study that we're doing with N.T. Wright on the same book. The idea is that we as a community and we as a congregation uh, would saturate ourselves in, that we would stew in this book, uh, that it would, it would form and shape us as we do, that there's a marinating process. Is that enough food imagery used there in a short bit? That would allow us to, to somehow uh, take more from it than we would get in just a, a passing glance. And so invitation to you, if you want to join us at 830, you certainly be part of that, but certainly here in worship uh, at 945 each week we'll be going through uh, the book of Philippians. I would offer this, uh, it has been one of my favorite books uh, throughout uh, my life in the faith, and uh, particularly the tone that it sets, I think it, it sets a, a great tone. Some of you are college football fans, uh, might see Philippians as uh, the first three games of the season, where you play Portland State. Right, it's, the, it's those type of type of games. There's a sense of joy that emanates uh, from from this particular book. Gets you set off in the right direction. You know, far more Disney show tunes have been part of my my life in recent years than they have ever in the past. Particularly those associated with the princesses. <laughs> I went from zero to some. <laughs> of course, I'm not complaining here. Just acknowledging that I've caught myself on a number of private occasions, uh, singing the tunes. Uh, this last week, I found myself at one moment all by myself humming the tune to Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Why has it come to this? You know, there's something about those songs, and there's something about theme songs specifically that capture our attention. They hold on to us. I can still remember the theme song to Simon and Simon. Does anybody know Simon and Simon? The 1980s crime drama? I still remember that song. <laughs> it sticks with you. Theme songs stick with you. They hook you in. And today's reading is such a song. It's a theme song for the Christian life. It's a theme song that's designed to hook us and allow us to see and understand and to know something significant that has happened and to lay claim to what God is doing in Jesus Christ. And somewhere back in history, somewhere in the earliest movements of the church, those earliest Christians uh, crafted this song. Scholars aren't sure if Paul wrote this or if he's taken it from another source. But somewhere in the earliest church, this song, this poem, this hymn emerged. And it served as a powerful testimony to what God is up to and what God has accomplished. And we'll see that here in the next few, few moments. And so I've done the unthinkable. And I apologize now to you. I have started the series in the second chapter. <laughs> next week we'll come back to chapter 1, verse 1. We move this to front and center. Because the entire book of Philippians draws from this hymn. It pulls from various pieces that Paul has identified here in this same text. And so I want us, like I said from the outset with the series, I want us to marinate in this. I want this poem, this hymn, this song to be at the front of our minds and solidly placed in our hearts as we go through the entire book of Philippians over these next many weeks. So let me give a couple homework assignments right off the top. How do you like that? Right from the top. We're breaking all the rules today. Starting in chapter 2, we're giving homework at the beginning. Take some time to write this out. 
write this poem out and place it somewhere where you can see it and you can read it throughout the entire season of this, of this sermon series. They have it front and center because that's where the earliest Christians had it. They had it in their mind and their thoughts and it helped shape who they were. Now the question of course comes right from the get-go, the style here. Why convey something so important in a song? Why use poetry? I was listening to one scholar who uh, shared something that happens here in our communities all the time. And he shared that when you think about when cuts are made to school districts and school funding, right? Who's the first to go? The arts, right? The arts are always on the chopping block. We're always cutting them out. They're not as important. But yet here we have the earliest Christians adopting an artistic type style. Not using prose, but using a poem to communicate some of the most central things about the faith. Why would they use such a style? I think we each know in our own personal lives that music plays a powerful role. It plays a powerful thing inside our hearts and our minds. I remember I was out walking uh, my dog Molly. I used to have a black lab named Molly. 85 pounds of black lab that shared our house with us and sometimes our bed. That's a lot of dog to share your bed with. I was walking Molly uh, on our normal route. We were in Connecticut at the time. We had kind of a rectangular route. We'd walk out from our house and go uh, a couple miles, uh, uh, essentially around the blocks, we'll say. Um, and Molly and I were out walking, and people from the church were waving and honking their horns. But it was the last time I would walk Molly. And I remember that I was sad with each passing. This is the last time. I was very, very conscious of what was happening. We knew Molly would be put down uh, later that evening. And so as I walked her, the thing that sustained me that I found coming to mind was the song. Singing songs that I had known in church. Songs of, uh, from psalms and, and hymns. And that's what brought me through that when, when the people waved and honked. And I could barely keep myself together just to wave back. The same thing happened when my father died in 2004. There was a, there was a moment uh, where I didn't know what, how to express where I was feeling, what the, what the sentiments I had. And it was a song that emerged that came. And it was songs that found me at those places where the emotion was the greatest and the deepest. And I think, I think many of us here this morning know that. You have songs that mark memories in your life and moments, uh, and, and they, they mark a time and a space, and, and they rekindle for you a, a, a place of imagination that you uh, can't put words to. But somehow, the song and the lyrics do that. We have our favorite songs. We think of the favorite song we might dance to with our partner. And we think about the places that we've been and the music that's served as that soundtrack. And here, this, this poem offers for us a glimpse of how powerful expressions can be held together where prose might lack. Let me give you a for instance here for this particular text. As we look at the text itself, it weaves through together several theological categories for us. At one level, it tells us the story of Jesus himself. And as you read through it, you can kind of follow the gospel stories. This one, this one who is with God who now becomes human and goes to the cross. You can follow that arc all the way through the poem. At the same time, we see uh, references to the great servant, uh, things that are prophesied in Isaiah. That, remember, if you think Isaiah 40 uh, through 55, those great chapters of Isaiah that talk about the servant who would come. And it talks about that mission, that vocation of the servant. And we see that right here in this song. At the same time, uh, one scholar in particular is, is identified with this. 
there's, there's a consideration of Adam that can be found here in the text. You've got to go into the Greek a little bit to find that one, so you have to geek out there. But the, the idea of who, who is the, the true Adam, the one who fulfills this true humanity, is built into this, this uh, poem as well. And it's the story of God. As you read through and you, and you realize that this was, this was written in the context of a community that would have held up high, there is one God. And yet now we hear in Jesus Christ, this one who comes, that, that God is going to take action on behalf of humanity. That there's this downward movement that's going to happen, this downward movement of love that we see here. That that's also captured here in this, this song, in this poem. There's a sense that God is redefined for us in that first century generation here with this song. And the last thing that this kind of holds together is the cultural uh, environment in which it's, it's written. You think about the people who are living in this time uh, in Philippi. Probably the best example I have of, of how you might understand Philippi is a number of years ago I was, I was uh, invited to preach at a church in Montana. A very small church in Montana, a very small town. And I remember I was going to say something about the separation of church and state. I was going to make some sort of point on that. And I was doing my preparations in the, in the sanctuary the evening before. And I was drawing on the theological declaration of Barman and talking about Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And he, he stands above, uh, you know, even our political persuasions and, and, and above even our politics. And uh, Andy Stanley today writes in his book, he would, he would talk about this idea that's uh, pervasive in America today where we are one God under nation. And it's, it was that type of tone was in the sermon. And I remember I was preparing there in the sound booth. And as I was preparing, doing those final st- steps there with the sermon, a man walked in. He walked right up to the table up at the, on the chancel. And he had a bag in his hand, and he began to decorate the chancel. And when he stepped away, the chancel was now covered with dozens of American flags and red, white, and blue everywhere. That was going to be the backdrop to where I was preaching that morning. I had to nuance my sermon (laughs) so I could escape that town (laughs) later on. But that's the sense if you go to Philippi in the first century. The people that live there are, are the folks who are the most committed to the empire. These are veterans that live here. And doesn't 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 say anything bad about veterans. I'm not saying that here. But rather, these are people who love Rome. That they were in positions of, of owning land, and, and they had status, and they had the most to lose if you start knocking on the empire. And that's who this, this is who this community was made up of. And so this particular poem, as it talks about Jesus being Lord in a culture and in a time when Caesar is Lord. Here the poem captures this. N.T. Wright talks about this as being the place where Jesus is communicated as the reality. And Caesar then is seen as parody. Jesus being the real Lord. It's a poem that does that. It's a song that can do that. Prose would might give us one of each of these things. But a song or a hymn would give us all of those things simultaneously. If you know art, you know Picasso, you know the term simultaneity. The idea of being able to see two perspectives at the same time, or seeing more than one perspective at the same time. That's what's happening here in this poem. It weaves together all these different places. And so as we come to this powerful song, we come to this powerful hymn, and we realize that all this stuff is going on, we have to pause 
and silence enters all of creation as the song itself comes off at the very beginning with probably the strongest of statements. Jesus Christ existed in the form of God. That's a powerful statement. For us today, we live in a, in a world where many, many years have passed in the Christian movement. And we take for granted the idea, even these terms, Christ and Lord, because they've been around and with us. They've seemed like they've been so defined and overdefined. But to realize in that first century, as this song lays out who this person, this person Jesus, this man who lived at a particular time and place in history, is then identified as being one who is within the sphere or the orbit of God, and that they come into this world as a person. That's an extraordinary statement to make. And you think about how that would correspond to a Jewish man named Jesus. If that were to happen today, we might say, that's wild, wild talk. But here we have this incarnation in verse 7, that before that happened, that Jesus is in some way God. And as the song continues through verse 8, we have a miniature summary again of the gospel narrative and how this one who is high above comes down low. When we look at the structure of the, of the psalm itself, we start to see some pretty big pieces that emerge here uh, with it. If you look at the, the beginning and the end of the, the, the psalm, you'll get in uh, chapter, or excuse me, verse 6 and verse 11, you'll see God's form, again, that lofty place, in verse 11, we see that this is exalted. So you have these two bookends of this particular hymn. As the bookends move into verses 7 and 10, we see verse 7 that Jesus has a very particular vocation. That he's called to be one who serves the servant. And then you see in verse 10, there's an invocation. He's given a name uh, that goes with his, his position, with who he is. And again, as it squeezes even further down, we see in verse 8 that the one who is humble in verse 9 is going to be exalted. The reason I mention those, those, those structure there is because at the very middle of it all, we sing Jesus is the center, that Jesus is the center of our lives, the center of our church, that Jesus is the center of all of creation, that this is what we all orbit around or to orbit around. There's something that lies even at the middle of that song. At the very central part of it, and it's probably the most disruptive thing of the entire song itself, that at the center we read, even the death of the cross. This death that Jesus would experience, this death on a cross being the very middle focus would be so disruptive to a Roman audience and so disruptive to an audience that was filled with people that had everything to gain in the empire. That this idea of complete and total shame, of mockery, of humiliation would be seen as the goal, the mission, the focus to which God would go in Jesus Christ. That that would be so earth-shattering, that that would be so earth-shaking at the same time. And as we look at these things, we, we step back from them for a moment, and we're invited to ask questions of our own life. And so let me do that here for us now as we begin this series. The questions I want us to ponder and consider is the first one is this. If Jesus truly is the Lord, the exalted one that we hear here in chapter 2, where does that take shape in our own lives? Where do we see that as moving us 
into different directions, into different places. Do we go along with status quo? Do we continue with where the culture might move us as though we were a boat adrift in the sea and we hope that we somehow might land on a secure footing? Or is there a shaping agent that exists here? Is there something shaping here where Jesus is his Lord and we, again, are in that orbit? And is that moving us to the place of faithfulness? So that's the first place, is to recognize if Jesus is indeed Lord, how is that taking effect and shape in our own lives? The second thing as we look at this particular song, in recognizing that Jesus is moving towards the cross, and the cross somehow serves as a significant center point in the life of faith and the life of the Christian, that we might too be called to a similar vocation, that there's a sense that life is lived, and we see this throughout the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament and Paul's writing, there's a sense of what we might call shameful, what we might call downward mobility. I like how Max Lucado, uh, at this point, he actually talks about if it's about upward mobility, we're called to a life of downward servility. But there's a place where we are moving in stepping into that place of recognizing that the values that we see in culture are not always the values that we see in the faith. That God is calling us possibly to something different. So what would it look like for us to be a community of servants? What would it look like for us to be a community that wasn't looking to go up in status, but rather to reach even down to the lowest places that we might serve, that we might love, that we might be a people that live in that expression. It was mentioned in our uh, class this morning, um, one of the participants shared that if you wanted, we got to a point where we were talking about uh, unity and holiness, and one of the questions was if you wanted a, uh, an object lesson on uh, disruptions to unity, you didn't have to look any further than the last 10 years, right? <laughs> we see that in our own community here, in our own congregation. We see that uh, across our nation uh, as well. But how would that look differently? How much more different that might look, that expression would look, if we were to be ones who stepped into service first? That was the first foot, first, first foot forward. And the last thing is this, and it comes from a song uh, when I was a child, I closed with this, this idea of being on mission. The reference in the text when we see that every tongue, uh, or every knee shall bow and every tongue shall uh, confess, That particular passage in in Philippians chapter 2 is actually taken straight out of Isaiah. Like I said, it's from the Isaiah servant of prophecies in chapter 40 through 55. That's actually a reference from Isaiah chapter 45, beginning in verse 22. And there's a sense that the people of Israel, and more than a sense, were hopeful that they were longing for Yahweh to come and to rescue them. That Yahweh uh, would come indeed, not necessarily a representative, But God, God's self, would come and rescue uh, God's people. And that was the hope. That's the expectation that as you read through the prophecies, you hear that kind of talk happening, uh, that Yahweh would come and set foot um, there in the the community. And you just imagine the excitement, the enthusiasm they had. And, And here, this song says that happened. It happens in Jesus Christ. When I was a kid, there was a song that we used to sing in Sunday school, and I think it's an old song. It sounds like an old song, uh, but maybe you know this one. It's in my heart, there rings a melody. 
You heard this song before? Dun, 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 dun. You can think, you can imagine a Sousa band following you behind you with that, with that song. But it's this idea that I have a song that Jesus gave me. That's the first verse. It was sent from heaven above. There never was a sweeter melody. Tis a melody of love. It goes on to say, in my heart there rings a melody. There rings a melody with heaven's harmony. In my heart there rings a melody. There rings a melody of love. Philippians chapter 2 is such a melody. It's such a song. It speaks of the God who loves so much that that God gives and gave. One and only Son to come. To come not only just to show up and give a good message. Not to show up and be an, give an encouraging word. Not to slap you on the back and say, right old chap. But rather God comes in the person of Jesus Christ. To demonstrate God's own love for us. Going to the cross. But something happens in that cross. There's something that happens in that cross that changes all of creation. It transforms us as persons and intends to transform our thinking and the way that we live in the world today. Friends, my encouragement to you this morning is that as we go through this series and as we continue in Philippians, that you allow that song to permeate and marinate in your soul and your heart. That it would be a place where it would be deeply rooted and seated in you, that your heart too would sing that joyful melody that Paul lays out for us in this book, which God gives to us through his spirit and through Jesus Christ. May it be so for our generation today and every day of our lives.